It's November 7th, 2022, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. Today on our show, Shopify earnings show strength of plus offering. Disney Plus expands into e-commerce. CB Insights valuations report reveals troubling late-stage trends for startups. Amazon Q3 earnings reveal growth but also profit concerns. And finally, the Investor Minute, which contains five items this week from the world of venture capital, acquisitions, and IPOs. But first, in our shopping cart full of news, Shopify Q3 2022 earnings show strength of plus offering. In the last two weeks, Shopify reported Q3 earnings and I listened in. Of course, I listened differently than a financial analyst. I'm really listening to learn about management, strategy, leadership, as well as execution. I could mostly care less about estimates and expectations. While financial analysts love what they saw today, I did see a few dark clouds. Here are the big themes. First, Shopify Plus is now 33% of monthly recurring revenue. That is significant in 18% year-over-year growth MRR for Shopify Plus. MRR was $107 million in the quarter, up 8%. What this means is that Shopify Plus is growing twice as fast from a total MRR point of view as lower versions like Basic and Advanced. This is also what is driving the attach rate of other Shopify offerings like audiences and payments. Two, Shopify's new operating margin drops from flat year-over-year in 2021 to now negative 25%. What does it mean? Every time Shopify makes $1, it actually loses 25% providing the service. While there are a lot of SaaS companies that look like this, it's not a good look. And Shopify has not had such terrible net operating margin since before 2018 when I clocked it in at negative 20%. Three, so where are all these expenses coming from? Shopify didn't lose money last year, of course. I took a look below the gross margin line and here's what I found. Research and development spending increased 86% year over year, almost double. General and administrative spending increased 62% year-over-year. Literally, this is overhead. Sales and marketing spending increased 27%. Keep in mind, top-line revenues only increased 22% year-over-year, and gross margins went down from 54% to 48%. So, less profitable per item you sell, and you increase expenses three to four times the rate of your revenue growth, not the formula for entering economic uncertainty. I would love to say I see no issues here, But that's not the case. It's really hard not to predict a major restructuring opportunity coming as they integrate deliver. Clearly, these trends cannot continue indefinitely. Fourth, they touted their Shop Promise badge, which is aimed at the heart of Amazon. Shopify fulfillment network merchants now have Shop Promise, no word on deliver merchants, on their Shopify stores now. I looked at a Shop Promise badge in the wild, and even the core value prop screams, you get fast two-day shipping without a subscription, meaning Prime. It couldn't be more on the nose. So we have Shop Promise in one corner and Buy with Prime in the other. Fifth, Shopify overall subscription growth has slowed down. 12% year-over-year growth. In past years, subscription revenue growth has been like 45%. They say this is because of App Store revenue changes, but this doesn't make sense to me. I thought subscription revenue was about the platform and merchant services revenue was more or less everything else. Doesn't this mean that big commerce is growing subscription revenue faster? Like three times faster? I kind of have them at 35% year-over-year subscription growth on a yearly basis. Look, 
Shopify has a very strong position still in the market and has largely eliminated the need for RFPs for many brands. But its financial performance matters because it needs to attract and retain innovative employees that power its growth. Our second story. Disney Plus expands into e-commerce. TechCrunch and the Wall Street Journal reports that Disney Plus is rolling out exclusive merchandise through a shop linked to their streaming service, which will link users off to an online experience. A few elements I picked up on. Shop exclusive and early access merchandise from the brands directly from the detail pages on the streaming service. In order to access it, you need to hold up your phone to the screen and snap the QR code. Ugh. Does anyone remember the 80s when certain shows distributed red and blue glasses for special 3D events and you were amazed, but yet wondering, what the hell is my whole family doing in the living room wearing strange glasses for questionable effects? Who remembers Monster from the Black Lagoon? This is the area I feel like we're in with QR codes. In the future, we could have something like a digital link between your authenticated real-world presence and a connected device, whether that is your TV or an AR device that's already present. What form will this take is up for debate, however. Two camps definitely working on these ideas are Meta and Apple. Most people are betting on what seems to be Apple's AR-focused approach, whereas Meta is more focused on VR or virtual reality. I can see this coming, but it sure seems to be happening extremely slowly. Wrapping up on streaming, the streaming services that can establish a new revenue, ads, or merchandising will definitely have an advantage in the future. Other streaming services feel like they are destined for another cable-like consolidation play. The advantage Disney has over everyone else is, of course, the incredible fan base, which completely gobbles up any merchandise a company offers. So this is a great idea to drive more value from Disney Plus membership. Our third story. CB Insights Valuations Report reveals troubling late-stage transfer startups. I received a copy of CB Insights' report that showed a few trends that I thought other Watsonians would like to hear about. First, while valuations declined across many stages of venture capital, they declined most in the late stages, with stage D and later valuations falling 27% plus quarter over quarter. This makes sense to me because not only are there fewer deals happening, but earlier in the cycle, most venture capital-backed companies don't have to care about the valuation too much. Higher valuation, low valuation, doesn't matter, as long as there's cash in the bank. It's in later stages prior to an acquisition or an IPO that valuation is critical, and late-stage venture investors are most in tune to the prices that the public and private markets are paying for the IPOs and acquisitions. In short, you have to reconcile the private valuations that are internal with the public valuations that markets are paying. Second, the number of seed deals is not bad off as they are expected to be flat full year 2021 to this year with increased valuations year over year. This is great news for entrepreneurs because funds have capital to deploy. And despite the fact that early stage deals are the riskiest part of the portfolio, they also don't need to produce results soon. Later stage deals like series A and B are off a little bit, but not nearly as much as series D and later. A final trend to consider is that investors become more cautious, particularly in later stages, they're demanding more preferences and participation rights if things go south. For founders with great businesses, remember to hold firm as one investor can really screw up your entire cap table in the event things go wrong or make it harder for you to attract your next investment. And our last story. Amazon Q3 earnings reveal growth but also profit concerns. 
Amazon recently announced their Q3 earnings and with it helped reveal a little bit more about e-commerce and retail outlook going forward. Analysts were expecting much faster AWS growth and better profitability, and European exposure caused it to miss those forecasts in the face of a European recession. Another thing that analysts did not like was their muted guidance for Q4. I'm definitely more positive than the stock market on Amazon, but let's get into it. Ultimately, the good news for Amazon is that they have multiple levers to help their business grow. First party, third party, AWS, and now ads. First, growth is up. The company reported 19% constant currency sales growth. Better than I expected, really. The major prime day in July was in these numbers, but the second early access event in October was not. Just to give you a comparison point for that 19% to Shopify, Harley on the Shopify earnings call mentioned 15% year-over-year sales growth, excluding currency. I do think marketplaces will benefit in this environment. Second, the company's productivity and cost savings improvements were not all realized. The Amazon team shot for $1.5 billion in improvements in Q2, but reached only $1 billion. If a normal person misses a sales quota by one-third, somebody gets fired. Any way you slice it, this is not great achievement to plan. Of course, Prime Day will depress margins, so that is one factor. Amazon also mentioned on the call that Q4 isn't going to help because it's harder to recover costs during a peak season when all personnel are otherwise occupied. This is why analysts are up in arms. The cavalry is not coming this year. Third, there appear to be no reasonable explanations of what's happening with the space restrictions on Amazon sellers right now. Follow me for a moment. You double your fulfillment network, and you're still cutting FBA storage and replenishment limits actively? Inventories are up, but surely they're not double. And purchase orders to first-party vendors are dropping consistently because, quote, our warehouses are full. You just doubled your fulfillment network, and they keep blaming costs on this from one side of their mouth. From the other side of the mouth, their warehouses are full. I think there are three likely explanations for this. Not sure. It could be a mix of all of them. First, their warehouses are not yet online and making a serious impact. Or the ones that are, are not staffed. These are tough jobs to fill, despite the fact that Amazon pays above market. They need a lot of people, and half of the U.S. has already tried and quit an Amazon warehouse. Another final explanation comes in from a friend of mine, John Durkitz, at Foreign Brands. His answer is that there are only so many docks and fulfillment centers, and most of them are set to outbound right now, getting ready for the peak season. Okay, I believe that could be true, but is it true across the entire network? The one thing I don't like about this is it still doesn't answer the fact that they doubled the network itself, but didn't double volume. Also, if this explanation were true, wouldn't it be true most every year? And didn't they double the network to, quote, remove space as a constraint? It strains credibility to believe that docks would then become an unresolvable constraint and that Amazon wouldn't think ahead of this. Fourth, third-party units are up to 58% of total from 56% of this time last year. The star of the show at the moment is really the advertising business, up 30% year-over-year when you exclude currency. On a quarterly basis, they reach $10 billion in revenue, which is just a staggering number this quarter. Wrapping up, I was impressed with their 19% growth this quarter, but unimpressed with the profitability achievements. Andy Jassy in one of his first letters said the team was on it, but obviously trying to run multiple prime days, dealing with declining traffic and change consumer spending patterns, while at the same time reducing expenses, is a tall order. It's that time, friends, for our Investor Minute. We have five items on the menu today. First, ARTA secures $11 million to transform the post-purchase experience for high-end goods and collectibles. I love this segment because it's an area of fulfillment that most do not focus on, high-value goods. 
the solution is already starting to be used by art galleries around the world. Second, Katana, an ERP for SMB manufacturers, raises $34 million. I wish them luck, but there's a big category challenge here. ERP is complex software, which is expensive to produce and maintain. The SMB segment demands simplicity and low cost. I guess that's why they're raising money. Just figure it out. Third, luxury retailer Rue Guild Group withdraws its $100 million IPO. I know this section is supposed to be about investments. This seemed to fit here as well. I know a lot of the people at Rue Guild and wish them luck. It makes all the sense of the world if you have the cash to survive another year or two to delay an IPO to a different time. Fourth, Sneaker reseller Goat set to acquire streetwear site Grailed. This is another one of those acquisitions that would never have happened a year ago. Grailed would have just raised more money on its growth story. With venture capital becoming more difficult to come by, it remains to be seen if Goat itself can survive the next couple of years if it's not already profitable. And finally, Buy Now Pay Later provider Credit Key raises $150 million in debt and equity. Debt arbitrage, anyone? The fact that debt is a component here is a big red flag for me. This means Credit Key is going to be lending money in a rising interest rate environment and hope that the terms of its own debt will be less than the terms it can lend to others. All this in an industry which has historically not been great about collecting its debts. That's all for this week. Till next time, Watsonians. Hi, I'm Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of the Watson Weekly Podcast your essential e-commerce digest. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. The show is produced by Alex Brower, production manager, Gabriela Montekin. To hear new episodes of the show every Monday morning, subscribe now at rmwcommerce.com slash Watson Weekly and wherever you get your podcasts.